Now, I'm going to begin uh, just a short series, uh, probably last about four or five weeks, about what it means to be uh, a Christian in a Baptist church. Um, Now, churches, all the churches that I've uh, been a pastor of have been Baptist churches, but they're all full of people from all sorts of different backgrounds. You know, people have come from all sorts of other denominations, uh, people that have come from no church, like have just come to faith, um, people from other faiths that have come into faith and joined the church. So we're a kind of quite a mixture, and all of us bring a history with us. So, um, you know, if you started singing kind of some of the old Sankey hymns to me, I wouldn't know any of them, probably not many, because if you, were, if you came from a church that used to sing those, then they'd be familiar. Whereas I was brought up in a Methodist church, so, you know, I'm very familiar with the Wesley hymns. And, you know, we've all brought a history with us. We've all brought a kind of good and bad, negative, uh, good and bad memories about church as well. Uh, church isn't always good. Sometimes things go wrong, and um, so we all come together uh, in this church here on this day. Some of you would say, yes, I would consider myself to be a Baptist Christian. Some people would not. Some people say, I'm a Christian, I come to this church because, well, you've got your reasons why you come here. But it is important that if we are five-head Baptist church, that we understand a little bit about what our identity is. What, why are we called that? What, what does that mean for us to be um, the Baptist Church. Now, I did write in my, in my email that I sent around, please don't yawn at this, but we're going to have a look over the next few weeks at something called the Baptist Union Declaration of Principle. <gasps> Shock horror. Let's have a look, Steve. The Baptist Union Declaration of Principle. Um, so let's just have a look at the, this is just the first part we're looking at today, that our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, God Manifest in the flesh is the sole and absolute authority in all matters pertaining to faith and practice, as revealed in the Holy Scriptures, and that each church has liberty under the guidance of the Holy Spirit to interpret and administer his laws. That's quite a lot of words, but the bit I want us to look at today is just that first bit. If you like, click once more. There we are, the bit that's come out in dark red that our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ is the sole and absolute authority in all matters. Now that's a pretty astounding statement, isn't it? And um, it actually differs very slightly from those of you, if you may have come from an evangelical church, you may have in yours that actually the scriptures are our sole authority. Yeah? And, And the scriptures are our authority, aren't they? But actually, this is subtly different. It says the Lord Jesus Christ is our sole and absolute authority as revealed in the scriptures. So the scriptures are there, but what do the scriptures do? They point us to Jesus. You know, we're not a people who worship a book. We're people who worship a risen saviour and we have a fantastic book which has given us all that we need to know uh, about him. And we have the Holy Spirit who continues to reveal more and more about him. I think that's really important because actually... There are some issues that we deal with in the 21st century which aren't mentioned in the Bible. You know, there are some things today which, you know, just weren't even thought of 2,000 years ago when the Bible was written. Um, So we can't necessarily find a chapter and verse that are going to tell us the answer. But we can look to Jesus. And so our... um, our strapline, if you like, a number of years ago, people were wearing the little wristband saying, what would Jesus do? WWJD, 
Uh, that's a very good question for us to ask. What would Jesus do in this situation? And, and he is our focus, as we were saying earlier. He is our authority. Now, every organisation needs a position of authority. It needs rules. It needs leaders, because if, if there aren't any leaders, then chaos reigns. So another time we're going to be thinking about those uh, situations, I mean, how we actually put this into practice. But today, um, it's all about the sole and absolute authority of Jesus. And we need to keep our eyes fixed on him, because otherwise, if you miss the mark, you, know, you just get a blurred picture and things start to go wrong. Now, last week, Simon Farrer, for those of you who are here, um, the, gave us an excellent uh, sermon uh, to finish off the Lord's Prayer on the last line, deliver us from the evil one. And he was looking at how we rely on God and we pray that he will protect us from the work of the evil one. Now, the the work of the evil one takes many different forms. But let me tell you that um, the favourite practice of the evil one, in my book, is to destroy churches. And I'm not talking about ISIS knocking down churches, because that is clearly evil. I'm talking about a much more subtle thing. If the evil one can get in to a church and start destroying it from the inside and making people fall out with each other, he has a field day. He absolutely loves it. And so we're going to listen uh, for a few minutes to something that is actually the first letter from C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters. I don't know whether you heard this. It was dramatised on the Radio 4 a few years ago. And just in case you're not familiar with this book, the Screwtape Letters are a series of letters sent between a junior devil and his senior master. And the senior master is giving the junior devil instructions on how to destroy the church. So when he talks about our enemy, he's actually talking about Jesus. Okay, so just in, in this picture. So, um, um, so if you'd like to listen to this uh, and, and just see the tactics that the enemy uses to try to destroy churches. Steve. My dear Wormwood, I note with grave displeasure that your patient has become a Christian. Do not indulge the hope that you will escape the usual penalties. In the meantime, we must make the best of the situation. There is no need to despair. Hundreds of these adult converts have been reclaimed after a brief sojourn in the enemy's camp and are now with us. All the habits of the patient, both mental and bodily, are still in our favour. One of our great allies at present is the church itself. I do not mean the church as we see her spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it is quite invisible to humans. All your patient sees is the half-finished sham Gothic erection on the new building estate. When he goes inside, he sees the local grocer with rather an oily expression on his face, bustling up to offer him one shiny little book containing a liturgy which neither of them understands, and one shabby little book containing corrupt texts of a number of religious lyrics, mostly bad and in very small print. When he gets to his pew and looks round him, he sees just that selection of his neighbours whom he has hitherto avoided. You want to lean pretty heavily on those neighbours. Make his mind flit to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ 
and the actual faces in the next pew. It matters very little, of course, what kind of people that next pew really contains. You may know one of them to be a great warrior on the enemy's side. No matter. Your patient, thanks to our father below, is a fool. Provided that any of those neighbours sing out of tune, or have boots that squeak, or double chins, or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous. At his present stage, you see, he has an idea of Christians in his mind, which he supposes to be spiritual, but which, in fact, is largely pictorial. His mind is full of togas and sandals and armour and bare legs, and the mere fact that the other people in church wear modern clothes is a real, though of course an unconscious, difficulty to him. Never let it come to the surface. Never let him ask what he expected them to look like. Keep everything hazy in his mind now, and you will have all eternity wherein to amuse yourself by producing in him the peculiar kind of clarity which hell affords. Work hard, then, on the disappointment or anticlimax which is certainly coming to the patient during his first few weeks as a churchman. The enemy allows this disappointment to occur on the threshold of every human endeavour. It occurs when the boy who has been enchanted in the nursery by stories from the Odyssey buckles down to really learning Greek. It occurs when lovers have got married and begin the real task of learning to live together. In every department of life, it marks the transition from dreaming aspiration to laborious doing. The enemy takes this risk because he has a curious fantasy of making all these disgusting little human vermin into what he calls his free lovers and servants. Sons is the word he uses. Desiring their freedom, he therefore refuses to carry them to any of the goals which he sets before them. He leaves them to do it on their own. And there lies our opportunity. But also remember, there lies our danger. If once they get through this initial dryness successfully, they become much less dependent on emotion and therefore much harder to tempt. I have been writing on the assumption that the people in the next pew afford no rational ground for disappointment. Of course, if they do, if the patient knows that the woman with the absurd hat is a fanatical bridge player, or the man with squeaky boots is a miser and an extortioner, then your task is so much the easier. All you then have to do is to keep out of his mind the question, if I, being what I am, can consider that I am in some sense a Christian, why should the different vices of the man in the next pew prove that this religion is mere hypocrisy and convention? You may ask whether it is possible to keep such an obvious thought from occurring even to a human mind. It is, Wormwood. It is. Handle him properly and it simply won't come into his head. He has not been anything like long enough with the enemy to have any real humility yet. What he says, even on his knees, about his own sinfulness is all parrot talk. At bottom, he still believes he has run up a very favourable credit balance in the enemy's ledger by allowing himself to be converted, and thinks that he is showing great humility and condescension in going to church with these smug, commonplace neighbours at all. Keep him in that state of mind as long as you can. Your affectionate uncle... Screw tape. 
There we go. So the advice from uh, screw tape to wormwood is keep people looking at one another and finding their faults and, and seeing how, keep their eyes off Jesus. As long as he can keep people's eyes away from Jesus and point out all the faults of everybody else and all the other problems, he's, he's winning. So, there we go, folks. That's, that's, that's derailed him today. So, uh, keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus. So, what better piece of scripture to be looking at than uh, this passage in Colossians? Um, you notice that the book of Colossians was written by Paul uh, to a church, a church that he loved. He describes them as the holy and faithful brothers at Colossae. Remember that Paul himself is in prison and uh, he's trying to encourage them uh, to hold on to the gospel and he has every confidence in the gospel. He talks about this gospel bearing fruit and growing throughout the world and at the end he talks about the gospel that's been heard and been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. I love that. It's, the gospel is not just for people. It is for the whole of creation as we were thinking about um, a few weeks ago. So, uh, he uh, is writing to Colossae, but later on you discover in the letter of Colossians that there, is some, there are some kind of heresies that are coming into the church, that are being taught, uh, that Paul is trying to correct. So what's his tactic? To argue against them? No. To point them to Jesus. In other words, get your binoculars out. Get your focus of your camera on Jesus see who he is, and actually all those distractions go into the blurred bit of the side. You notice often photographs, but the bit that you want to look at is sharply in focus, and everything else is blurred. That's, that's what we need to be doing, to get the important thing, Jesus, into focus. So let's, let's, um, let's have a step on, uh, Steve. I mean, uh, can I do this myself, or are you... Are you no, you can't. Right, okay, that's fine. So the question is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? It's the fundamental uh, question. Paul, uh, Jesus asked it to Peter, didn't to his disciples, who do you say I am? Very, very important question. Uh, and, and Peter blurts out, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, when Peter's eyes have been opened to see who Jesus is. Now let's just go, the, the bit we're going to really look at today is from verse 15. And um, many scholars believe that this is probably a hymn of the early church, that uh, Paul is quoting here. So it's in a kind of a poetic form, uh, and, and the people who are listening to Paul or reading Paul's letter would have recognised probably this as part of their liturgy, part of their, of their singing. So let's see what it says, both about his person and his work, who he is and what he's done. Those two separate things. That is the heart of what we call Christology, the, the words about Jesus, who he is and what he has done. So let's first of all look who he is. And it starts off, he is the image of the invisible God. Now you'll recall that in, uh, in the book of Genesis, when uh, God makes human beings, he says, let us make mankind in our image. And so uh, if you want to see the image of God, just look at your next door neighbour. There we go. You, your next door neighbour is made in the image of God. And hereby goes what, which, bit, you know, the, which bits you focus on. 
Because if you look at your neighbour and you think about all the things that you know are wrong with your neighbour, you're looking at their sin. But if you look at your neighbour as somebody, a human being like you, made in the image of God, it completely shifts your perspective. Now, I know we've all got people who we do find difficult. Yep, some of you may find me difficult. Um, And, uh, you know, probably the most difficult person in any church is me. Um, we've all got people we can look at them, we can find their fault or we can look through to the person that God made even people whose lives are in a complete mess every single one of them is uh, made in the image of God but what does this say every image of God in here I would also say is tarnished we only see what the outside shows and we can cover an awful lot up can't we um But actually, this says about Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. Um, The the Greek word is icon. He is the icon of the invisible God. I know some people like to have a picture of Jesus to help them in their worship. But but this, this is saying, actually, Jesus Christ himself is the image. So if you want to know what uh, Jesus is, what God is like, look at Jesus. And when people say to me, well, I've given up church because this happened and that person did this, and and I I completely understand that. But what I say to you is, don't keep looking at those people and their faults. Look at Jesus. Because if you can find any fault with him, then I'd like to know. And I don't know anybody, atheist or anyone, who can tell any fault with Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. So let's move on, because we've got quite a few points. He is the firstborn over creation. Now, what does that mean? Uh, well, uh, a firstborn, you tend to think, as being you know, the, the youngest baby. But, uh, and, and to a certain extent, that is correct. But of course, Jesus himself was not born as a baby until uh, 2,000 years ago. But we believe that he was with God in the beginning, uh, as, as, as John tells us. Um, and the word firstborn actually means not just about physical birth, but it means their position in the fa- family, their position of inheritance. So your firstborn inherits the estate. That was the traditional thing. Uh, and uh, so to be the, the firstborn means that you are the heir. You are the most important, if you like. Um, now, of course, there are all sorts of issues about that, but this is what it's meaning. Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. So of, of the people who, who, who are like the lord of the manor, if you like, who is the heir of the whole estate, where you just have a humble cottage that you rent, the heir, the lord of the manor is Jesus. He is the firstborn. It all belongs to him. And so that puts him in his place. I mean, when, when you're looking... Uh, you know, the, the, the two Ronnies, isn't it? I look down to him and I look up to him. You know, we must always look up to Jesus. He is the firstborn over all of creation. In fact, that goes on to say, uh, in the next bit, he is the creator of all things. Look at this. It says, for him, for by him, all things were created. And then it repeats that again in a couple of verses later. All things were created by him and for him. So when we think about Jesus, this is not any ordinary man. This is not only the image of the invisible God, but he is actually the one who created things. 
And why did he create them? Just for you or for me? For him. For him. So when Jesus created this huge world, he did not just make it just for our convenience and our benefit. And that's what goes wrong when people, Christians often, and people have the wrong view of how we should care for creation. If you think that it's all there for you, that selfish attitude, you, you, you can see why you know, we get the kind of, um, shall we say his name, T attitude that says you can do anything you like with creation. It doesn't matter. You know? Uh, actually, it all belongs to Jesus. He made, it was made by him and for him. Um, so mess with it at your peril because it doesn't belong to you to mess around with. He is the creator of all things. It, he says here, he is the pre-existent Christ. He is before all things. You know, that's something we just can't even get our head around, can we? You know, someone, I think at the school, um, when the group that were doing about who is God... Uh, on, uh, on Friday, some of the more older, older children were, were asking the, the usual kind of question, uh, who made God? And of course, yeah, I think it's a good question to ask, isn't it? But this is, actually, nobody made God, he just is. Uh, and always has been. And so, this is saying here, Jesus is before all things. He exists before all things. He wasn't created. Um, he, he was there in the beginning with the Father. So, you know, that gives him a pretty, pretty good authority, doesn't it? <laughs> he was there before you were even a twinkling in the eye. He was there. But not only is he the uh, one who made all things, who was there in the beginning, he is the sustainer of creation. In him, all things hold together. I like that. If, if you've ever studied uh, physics, you will know that, um, that the universe is held together by some pretty basic, simple laws. One of them is called gravity. And if, if there were no law of gravity, uh, we wouldn't be here. Because we would not be rotating around the sun. We would not, you know, no, nothing would work. And, and in a sense, I kind of like this image of Jesus holding these things together. And, uh, you, you know, the universe continues because Jesus is holding it together. What happens if he stops holding it together? Ever thought about that? Well, the day will come, maybe, at the, at the end of time, when he comes and brings in the new creation, and then maybe it will be governed by another set of laws. But for now, it is held together by Jesus. And here's the, the, the most important one for today, probably. He is the head of the church. He is the head of the body, the church. Well, you know, after all these massive things, like creation and things, you'd think, well, the church, that's not that important. But it is. Because you are the body of Christ. Each one of us is part of the body of Christ. Who is the head? Jesus. And so, uh, it, it's absolutely clear in this verse, if you want to know who the head of the church is, the head of the church is Jesus. Now, we respect historical, um, you know, uh, the way that different traditions in different churches have come about, and, and I feel sure that Her Majesty the Queen herself does not consider herself to be the boss of the church. She always makes it clear in her 
in her addresses every Christmas that actually her boss is Jesus. Who knows what will happen after she finally goes. But certainly for Queen Elizabeth, Jesus is her boss and she recognises and openly acknowledges that. And then let's go on. He is the firstborn from among the dead. So although he is God, he was crucified. He's a crucified God. But of, of the new creation, the, the firstborn was Jesus who rose from the dead on that first day. But he's not the last. Because he's just the firstborn, and that means that anyone else who follows him, who is called a son of God, as was described in the Screwtape letters, he calls them sons. If you're a son or a daughter of God, then you also are raised from the dead as well. So he, he doesn't just keep this to himself. He embraces his church. We are risen with Christ. And then finally, fully God. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. That's a wonderful, wonderful statement. Do you ever get the Jehovah's Witnesses knock at your door? And uh, one, of the, one of the things that they often try to tell you, they say, oh yes, we're Christians. Oh yes, we believe that Jesus is a son of God. And you watch their language very, very carefully. But they do not say that he is the son of God and that he is God. Fundamental thing that they deny in who Jesus is. But here it says, he is in him, the fullness of God is dwelling. So this, and also uh, chapter 2, verse 9, you'll find that comes up again. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Um, The word pleroma means the fullness of God. He is fully. That is incredible, isn't it? Actually, this man, Jesus, that we can know is also fully God. So if you want to know who Jesus is, you cannot come to a better place in the scripture than Colossians chapter 1. I think it's one of the, there's one of a, uh, when I did my Cambridge diploma, there were a few, about five passages of scripture which are particularly chosen to study Christology, who is Christ. And Colossians 1 is surely one of the most magnificent. The other one, of course, Philippians 2, uh, Hebrews chapter 1, Romans uh, chapter 8. There's there's a number of different different verses that, that, that really point to who Jesus is. But knowing who he is is one thing, but understanding what he's done, his person and his work, is the other. So let's move on to what has he done. He's rescued us. I tell you what, there's an awful lot of people in our world who are looking for people to rescue them at the moment, aren't they? I mean, the whole island having to be evacuated, it's just unbelievable. 6.3 million people in Florida being evacuated, that is... Massive, and that's only one of the you know, there's a lot of people crying out to be rescued physically, but actually, Jesus has come to rescue us not just from our physical plight but from, a, from our spiritual plight. We are lost without Him, He has come to rescue us, He is a rescuer, He is a savior. And it goes on to say, He is He has redeemed us uh, in order to rescue us. Uh, sometimes you've got to pay a price. And Jesus Christ has paid the ultimate price in order to rescue us. Not only is he God and creator, but he has lowered himself down, like lowering on a rope on the helicopter to grab us and help us to be rescued. Uh, He has brought us back to himself. And he's paid the ultimate price, which is his blood 
shed on the cross. He has forgiven us. Um, He has forgiven us uh, uh, all of our sins. He said, once you were alienated, once you were alienated, but you've been forgiven. Sometimes our sin alienates us from people. Uh, But actually, Christ has come to break down that barrier, and not only to forgive us, but to go that one step further, to reconcile us. Reconciled to God. I mean, it's all very well forgiving somebody, but to be reconciled to that person is a next stage onwards, isn't it? And, uh, you know, uh, and that's why Christ has come. But not only to, only to, recognize, to reconcile us, but to reconcile all things. I think that's a, that is one of these most astounding statements. Uh, he has created all things, and the God who has created all things through Christ will redeem all things through Christ. So when we look at our broken world, when we look at the shattered lives through war and hurricanes and this world which seems to be getting worse and worse, does it not? Uh, the, the truth of the scripture says that one day Christ, he has he, he reconciled all things to God through his body, through his blood on the cross. Then if we go to the end of the scriptures, we'll see that he will make all things new. There is the, 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 the hope of eternity that one day Christ will make all things new. How has he done it? Simply by his death on a cross and by rising, by pouring out his blood. He makes peace with God through his blood shed on the cross. Well, I'm just exhausted talking about it, you know? If we just actually sit and ponder those incredible words, what Christ has done... Now we see why he's qualified to be the head of the church. Anybody else? Any archbishop or pope or anyone that could match him as head of the church? Absolutely not. He is matchless. Um, we're, going to, uh, we're going to sing a song as we reflect on this, but to him to be head of the church, that means each of us individually has to acknowledge his headship. And then corporately. Uh, and that's where the issues sometimes arise in church, and we'll, we'll have a look at the next part of the statement uh, in two weeks' time, um, how we actually work that out in practice. But we need to start by acknowledging his headship. So let's uh, we sing a couple of quiet songs. Um, the children will be coming back fairly soon. Um, we're going to sing Jesus is Lord of All. I don't know if you know this song, lovely song by Marilyn Baker, the blind uh, pianist. Jesus is Lord of all, and uh, Satan is under his feet. Going back to this idea of deliver us from evil, um, Jesus has the authority to trample down even the work of the evil one. <laughs>